to believe, me too. An abundance of scientific literature is truly a great thing, and we all need some help in carefully selecting what we consume so we avoid being swept away by wishful thinking or pseudoscience. I'll give you five ways we demonstrate scientific knowledge and five practical, simple tips that you can use to evaluate the information that you're consuming. Welcome to The Modern Creative Woman, exploring the art and science of creativity. This is the podcast for women who want to elevate their creativity and start applying creative thinking in their everyday life. I'm your hostess and creativity expert, Dr. Amy Bacos. I'm a licensed psychologist and registered and board-certified art therapist. At The Modern Creative Woman, we are helping you, The Modern Creative Woman, harness the power of creativity. Through our conversations and creative insight, I'll provide simple tricks and practices that will help you take the mystery out of the creative process so you can start each day feeling empowered, creative, and ready to take on whatever comes your way. Let's get started. If you're new here, welcome in. I'm your hostess, Dr. Amy, and for the last 26 years, I've been helping women live bold, creative lives through neuroesthetics, art therapy, and creative thinking. I'm the founder of The Modern Creative Woman, and we are on a mission to inspire women to use creativity in their everyday lives. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. I'm so thankful to have you on this audio creativity journey with me. Last year, two different people recommended a supposedly neuropsychology type of book to me. And I looked up the book, I thought, wow, two people recommended it, and I realized it was written by someone who is not a brain scientist, not a neuropsychologist, neurologist, psychologist, or researcher. And one of the people who recommended the book to me understood that this author had done all their own research, that they were the expert in this field, and they had done all of the research that they wrote about in the book. In fact, this author does not do any kind of brain research. So I started getting curious. This book was marked as a bestseller, and that means only that a lot of copies were purchased. Now, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list, they've been at that for a very long time, calculating how many copies are sold, and they will put a little dagger symbol next to books that they have on the bestseller list that got there because they're flagged as quote-unquote suspicious bulk purchases. That means the author or the publisher or the publicist bought so many copies that it was deemed a bestseller. Shocking. So the author of this book that I'm talking about, their work has been flagged. It was easy to find criticism. It's been flagged for peddling medical advice without a degree, making false conclusions about other people's scientific research, confusing the non-scientist reader with scientific terms, and teaching that your mind has tricks that can override and be more beneficial than standard medical or basic care. So I want you to know a best-selling book does not make it true. You already know that a diet book giving false promises and a quick fix is not going to work. As a society, we've been taught to be a little more suspect about that particular industry. 
But the people who are buying diet books are really wishing that it did work. And the book is taking advantage of their wish. The person who buys the book is kind of in denial. They wish so much that there is a quick solution. Furthermore, using scientific terms does not mean it's true. Someone can describe a part of the brain. It doesn't mean that they're right. If they're not a brain scientist and they're describing to you particular parts of the brain, do your own research. As a therapist, I've noticed that these kinds of books can be pretty dangerous. I've had people tell me about certain category of self-help books that tell them they can just kind of think their way out of a chronic illness. So the books are claiming not just how to teach you to have positive thinking and have optimism. They're saying you can think your way out of chronic illness, uncurable medical conditions, etc. And the people who are reading those books have told me that they feel so much shame that they couldn't use these strategies. They weren't strong enough to think their way into a cure. It was just one more reason to blame themselves and feel worse about their conditions. One thing that these kinds of books do is over-rely on the thinking process, and they fail to include the entire body. And you can go back to episode 31, and I talk all about how the mind-body connection is really a myth. They're not connected. They are one. We are one unit. And thinking is just a part of our body, the same way our heart beats, our brain thinks. And thinking thoughts simply can't overrule our genetics, our diet, where we grew up, our traumas, our stresses. We have to consider the whole being. I've had people tell me their beliefs as if they were facts, and they were so fused with their thoughts that they became completely closed off to other ways of knowing and other ways of thinking that could have helped them. So there are certainly some cautionary tales about people ignoring medical facts or ignoring their traditional healing practices and making very risky health decisions based on the idea that they can kind of think their way out of something. I'm a psychologist. I obviously believe in the power of thought. However, if an author tells you that their way is the right way, the only way, and it will over-deliver, you might want to return the book to the library. Lest you think I'm all down on self-help books, there are a lot that I really do like. There's so many incredibly interesting books out there written by people who are sharing their personal experience of how they healed. And these are incredibly helpful. They're very inspirational. And they're essentially, in science, we call it case study of that person and their experience from their subjective viewpoint. Perhaps they write about their trauma or their injury, their health, and they write about their path towards feeling better. And they're designed to help us feel good, understand them, and get some inspiration. I also like philosophy books a lot that teach a way of thinking or maybe an ancient or a modern practice. I love books by people who are talking about theory and talking about how they think. Now, I've read these kinds of books by religious leaders, free thinkers, scientists, lawyers, and they're all teaching a thought, a way of looking at the world, philosophical ideas, and they want to share that with a wider audience. And there's a lot of scientists who are writing books 
and they want to share their ideas in a way that make them more manageable to understand, easier to digest. And you can find some really great books that are not so heady with the science, written by researchers, academics, scientists who are really motivated to share what they've found and figure out how to apply it in the world. I did a little research on pseudoscientists, and I wanted to tell you mostly what that is. An individual who presents themselves as a scientist, but they actually don't have the necessary qualifications, expertise, and they don't adhere to scientific methodologies. They may promote pseudoscientific ideas or engage in activities that kind of mimic a scientific practice, but they don't have any genuine validity in their work. Now, doctors, scientists, psychologists are bound to ethical practices and standards that they uphold. But someone who is not a neuropsychologist isn't bound by those ethics. An author following the ethics of their profession will let you know the pros and cons of their information They'll also let you know if there's any controversy, conflicting information, and they will not overstep their conclusions. They will let you know how confident they are through their statistics. If the results are due to the research, they'll give you the details and they will not sugarcoat or overstate. Identifying pseudoscience involves really looking out for red flags and inconsistencies in the presentation of someone's scientific claims. So I have five ways that we can evaluate whether something is pseudoscience and we like it just because it sounds good and it feels good to think this way, or if it has more of an academic rigor and a place of understanding in the big picture of whatever field they're writing about. Pseudoscience rests on a lack of empirical evidence. They often rely on perhaps poorly conducted studies. There are many studies by industry where they hire the researcher to find the results that that industry is looking for. What we want to do is look for solid, peer-reviewed research supporting the claims. If there is a lack of evidence, it really raises skepticism. For example, an author who rests their entire philosophy on one study And it turns out that study was an anomaly, and all the other studies have found the opposite to be true. I believe that our authors need to tell you where material came from, how it's being used. For example, if an author writes a book about parenting, they raise three children, they're writing this book, it sounds like it might be good when they're telling you, this worked for me, it might work for you. It's starting to get a little bit suspicious when they are reporting research from a Google search instead of from an academic literature review, and they're drawing conclusions from complex studies. And even worse yet is when that parent claims what worked for them really is based on science and can cure your child's disease. The next one relates to can we falsify the beliefs. Scientific theories really must be falsifiable, sort of a fancy way of saying that there needs to be a way to test and potentially disprove them. 
And a pseudoscience will make really vague or unfalsifiable claims that simply cannot be tested or proven wrong or even measured. Scientific theories, on the other hand, are open to scrutiny. They are open to testing. And every scientific review in a peer-reviewed journal includes research that's for and against the hypothesis, and there's a clear way of understanding how to measure something. It might be very tempting to really just want a clear answer to what troubles us. And the reality is that psychology and every other science requires a long story of gathering research and testing, and lots and lots of learning and repetition. The third problem is an over-reliance on antidotes. And pseudoscience claims typically rest on a personal testimonial or an anecdote rather than a study on many people or a group of people having had the same experience and that the best kind of study is a randomized controlled study. And while anecdotes can be really compelling, they're not a good substitute for any kind of scientific evidence. I was the chair of the graduate art therapy psychology program, and we didn't let students do case studies in their master's or their doctor's. Case studies are really only used in very early studies to show examples. We're unable to draw conclusions from these case examples. So when people use them, they make conclusions about that person and don't generalize it to many, many other people. The next thing that you will often see in pseudoscience is an appeal to authority. Now, pseudoscientific claims can use authority figures and even celebrities will lend some kind of credibility to an idea. Sometimes there's a celebrity who believes a particular study that the whole rest of the scientific community understands as not the truth in that moment. And many people will listen to the celebrity, even though they're not a scientist. They just decided they believe this one thing. Emphasis in the scientific understanding, or a philosophical understanding, or a creative understanding, really needs to be based on some kind of evidence and methods, and not at all on the credentials or popularity of a person who's presenting the information. And the last one you'll recognize from what I said before about diet books, amazing claims without amazing evidence. We have to be very skeptical of claims that go against our established principles around science, and they make extraordinary assertions without providing any kind of extraordinary evidence. Remember, scientific theories and philosophies all build on existing knowledge, and an extraordinary claim requires robust evidence if it's going to be considered valid. I want to leave you with five ways that you can look at scientific material. One is, has the topic undergone peer review? And peer review in articles is essentially they've been evaluated by a panel of experts in the field before publication, and it ensures a much higher level of credibility. I sat for a long time on the American Art Therapy Association Journal board, and I was one of the reviewers for the scientific research that came through the journal. Every journal has a committee of people who reviews 
what's going to be potentially published. The next thing you can easily find is author credentials. If you look into the qualifications and expertise of an author who's claiming scientific rigor, you want to look for someone who has relevant practical application in that topic, perhaps research experience, affiliations with some kind of reputable institution, and they're more likely to produce incredible work. The third one, you can look at the publication source and really have a look at the platform where the research is being published. There's editorial standards, and if what you're reading hasn't gone through editorial standards, we just need to be more cautious with that kind of information and know that it doesn't carry as much weight. Another really important way that you can evaluate if the scientific book you're reading is pseudoscience or science is some attention to the methods that are used in the study. A well-designed experiment or a well-designed philosophical presentation includes a large sample size. Scientific study includes controls. And these are things that lead to better results, be more reliable and consistent in what they're reporting. So be cautious when an author who's talking about science has a lack of transparency about their methods and how they came to understand the material. And finally, what you consume in terms of scientific literature needs to coincide with existing knowledge. And you can do a quick search or you can evaluate other things that you've read and really assess whether this author's findings align with existing scientific knowledge. And scientific advancements build upon established principles. And if a study contradicts really well-established theories and practices without strong evidence, you might want to take an extra look. So remember, scientific understanding is dynamic, it's always growing and changing, and it's really exciting in that way. And individual studies are a part of that. Over-reliance on an individual study really goes against that scientific tradition. A critical analysis of multiple sources, being able to falsify what you're claiming, being able to measure it, and being able to show that it works on lots of people is really important. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Now that you know about how to use your creativity, what will you create? Want more? Subscribe to the Modern Creative Woman digital magazine. It's absolutely free and it comes out once a month. And I know you can get a lot out of the podcast and the digital magazine. Yet when you're ready to take it to the next level, I want you to know you have options inside the membership. And if you're interested in a private consultation, please feel free to book a call with me. Even if you just have some questions, go ahead and book a call. My contact is in the show notes and you can always message me on Instagram. Do come find me and The Modern Creative Woman on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Dr. Amy Bacos. If you like what you're hearing on The Modern Creative Woman podcast, I want to give you the scoop on how you can support the podcast. You can be an ambassador and share the podcast link with three of your friends. You can be a community supporter by leaving a five-star review if you think it's worth the five stars. And you can become a gold star supporter for as little as $3 a month. All those links are in the show notes. Remember to grab your free copy of the 21-Day Gratitude Challenge. The link is in the show notes, and you can find it at moderncreativewoman.com. 
Have a wonderful week, and I cannot wait to talk with you in the next episode.